All right, let's go ahead and begin reading in verse number 5. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. We're going to cover all these verses, Lord willing, tonight. So uh, verse number 5, Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 5. The Word of God says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. <coughs> Excuse me. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. <clears throat> now, we've read a mouthful just in those few verses tonight, but there is a noticeable shift in the content of what Paul has been talking about. We spent time last week looking at how the Lord Jesus is superior in his majesty as the Son of God. Superior to what? Well, he's superior than the angels. He's superior than anything else. Uh, I want to remind you before we jump into our text that the theme of the book of Hebrews is better things. Better things. Uh, in other words, the, the person to whom this was written would have been a, a Jewish individual right at the doorway of salvation. And uh, the reason I say that is because there's places where it seems as though the person being written to is, uh, is already saved. There's other places where it seems as though uh, the person being written to here uh, has not yet chosen the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I don't know that we have to pigeonhole it into one place or another. Uh, I think when Paul wrote this, he wrote this to more than one individual. And I believe that the targeted audience is a Jew that is at the place where they know the truth of Christ. They must make a decision. Are they going to believe He's the Son of God, the Messiah uh, that is sent from the Lord, the Savior of the world? Or are they going to reject Him as a heretic and embrace this system of Judaism that they have been raised in? So that's who he's writing to. And his intent is to show that Christ is far superior in every way to anything that the Old Testament system has to offer. Uh, he's going to go on, and we'll get into it, and it's sort of hinted at even in these verses we've read, how that his priesthood is a better priesthood, how that his sacrifice is a better sacrifice, how that his tabernacle is a better tabernacle, how that his system of approach unto God is a better system of approach, and so on and so forth. Well, he is continuing the thought to this uh, Jewish reader that Jesus Christ is superior the, to the angels. 
Now, you've got to remember that to us, the idea of the Son of God, like an only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, it's very familiar to you and I. But to the person reading this, it would not have been very, very familiar. In fact, one of the things they took issue with was the idea that God would have an only begotten Son. Uh, They were pure monotheists. Now, we are monotheistic, too. What does that mean? It means to believe in one God. But we believe in a triune God. In other words, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, uh, that they collectively comprise the Godhead, but that they individually are all co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, that they are all just as much God as the other one. But to the Jewish reader and to the Jewish mind, understanding God in this respect would have not been as clear as it would be to you and I. And so to them, this idea of God having a son and the son of God being the the supreme uh, person and, and being and being the hope and way to God was foreign to them. What they revered was angels. Uh, One of the reasons they revered angels is because angels were the means through which the Word of God was given in the Old Testament. And angels were the means of deliverance oftentimes in the Old Testament. And so they sort of looked at this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's claiming to be the Son of God. And they would have said, well, how could he undo the system of the Old Testament law? Because it was given by angels. And so Paul's intent is to show, well, that's true. Angels did attend the giving of the law and, and the ministration of it. That's all true. But Jesus Christ, he's far superior to the angels. And so in hearing from Christ, we're hearing from someone far greater than Old Testament prophets or, or priests or angels. That's the reason when the book opens, it opens by saying, God, who at sundry times in divers' manners spake unto our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So, in other words, he's showing the the superlative and superior nature of the Son of God. Now, he dealt with, and we studied it through chapter 1 up through uh, verse number 4, he dealt with how Jesus is superior as the Son of God, as God's Son. He is superior in his deity to the angels. But now he's going to begin to deal with the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ being superior in his ministry as the Son of Man. Now, I don't have time to go through all of the theology of it, but let me just make a a, a statement, a, a blatant, blanket, bold scriptural statement. Jesus Christ, when he was incarnated, he retained 100% of his deity. He was still 100% God, but he also became 100% man. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He, he knew what it was to be a human being. Now, I understand he didn't have a sin nature, and the Bible is very clear on that account. But he experienced the frailty and weakness and suffering and heartache that it is to be a human being. And if chapter 1 deals with him as as the Son of God, deals with him as God uh, in the flesh, then chapter 2 deals with him as God in the flesh and deals with his human ministry and what was accomplished by him becoming a human being and him suffering uh, in our stead. So I want you to notice this basically divides itself into three categories that we're going to look at tonight. Notice, first off, in verses 5 through 9, really the first part of verse number 9, Paul talks about Christ's sovereignty as man. Now, one of the important theological distinctions, and just a good bit of information to tuck away in your mind, is the correlation between Adam and Christ. Adam was the federal head of the human race. The Bible makes this clear that when Adam sinned, all of humanity was launched into sin. And the book of Romans says even those that did not uh, sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, you and I, we may have never stood in the Garden of Eden and partaken in fruit uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But because Adam is our father, Because he is the federal head, the first human being. His sin perverted, corrupted, poisoned the entire human lineage and race. 
But now the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of 1 Corinthians teaches us, is the second Adam. He came to undo everything that Adam's choice of sin did to humanity. And so he also is viewed as a federal head of the human race. Just as what happened to Adam, you know, as goes Adam, so goes the rest of the world. Well, as goes Christ, in a sense, so goes the human race. Now, we understand that a human being can reject God and reject Christ, and there's no dispute about that. But it's important to show this distinction, because as we go through these verses, we're going to talk about what God intended for humanity and how Jesus Christ is rectifying and reconciling God's plan for humanity. Let me show you what I mean. Look down in verse number 5. The Bible says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his, feet, under his feet, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, uh, why is this important to the Jewish person reading the book of Hebrews and to you and I sitting here today? How does it correlate? How is it relative uh, and relevant to, to your life and to mine? Well, here's why. In the greater scheme of things, here's what the Jewish reader would probably say. How could salvation be through Jesus Christ? After all, he was a man. Now, remember, as far as the Word of God is concerned, as far as God is concerned, as far as truth is concerned, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But as far as this Jewish reader is concerned, he doesn't understand why the Son of God would become a human being. And so the writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, he's trying to show why this happened. Notice a few things. I want you to notice, first off, the sovereignty of God bestowed upon mankind is reviewed. In other words, God had a sovereign plan for humanity. God had a design for Adam and a design for you and me. I think it involves, number one, the destiny of man in chapter 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. Mankind was ordained to bring the world under subjection under his feet. The world was created for man's enjoyment and pleasure and benefit. It's part of the problem I have with the whole eco-fascism you know, of today. Now, I believe we ought to be good stewards of our planet. Amen. I believe we shouldn't be just reckless with God's creation. But creation, listen, we weren't put here to take care of creation. Creation was put here to take care of us. And God's intent was for man to bring all of creation under subjection under his feet. One commentator said it this way, and I think it's probably true, that had sin not marred God's plan, Probably Adam, through the knowledge that God had given him and through the skill that God had given him, could have extended the Garden of Eden across the entire globe. That was God's intent, was for mankind to take dominion over the earth and to enjoy it. That was God's in, in, entire design in placing man. That's why the Bible says he planted a garden and he put man in it and he said, tend that garden. And I believe God's intent was for that garden to grow and to spread and for the entire world to be under subjection under him, the destiny of man is pointed to as a reason why Jesus Christ becoming the Son of Man makes sense. God has a desire for the world to be brought under subjection to mankind. Look at verse number 6. The dignity of man is spoken of. It says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now, this is a quote uh, out of Psalms chapter number 8, and it deals with this truth that God takes note and takes interest and takes mind of mankind. That's a phenomenal thought. 
tells us something about where God wanted mankind to be in relation to creation. Uh, listen, God created everything around. God created the, the frogs and the ducks and the horses and everything else. But He didn't walk with any of them in the cool of the day. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God displayed in the Garden of Eden a desire to have fellowship with mankind. He took mind. He took thought. He took notice of humanity. God still desires to have fellowship with mankind. If you don't believe that, look at Calvary. Uh, the great intent of Calvary was to reconcile sinners back into a relationship with God. So God's design and desire for mankind. Now, remember, keep in your mind why this is being spoken to us and written here. Because the Jewish reader would have said, but what about the angels? And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand. The world wasn't created for the angels. Uh, all of creation wasn't given to be put under subjection to the angels. God has a special place in His heart for the human race. And that's evidence by Calvary. I think the dignity of man is spoken of in verse number 6. I think the distinction of man is spoken of in verses 7 and 8. Now, this is interesting. I want to read these verses together, and then we'll go back and hash them out. The Bible says, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, what's he saying here? He says, here's mankind and here's the angels. And when God created mankind, he did create them a little lower than the angels. There's no question about that. Adam had a special relationship with God, but Adam did not have the power that angels had. He did not have the, the, the ministry that angels had. He wasn't in the presence of God in the same way that the angels have been, continually enjoying God's presence and glory. When God created mankind, he did create him a little lower than the angels. But God's intent was not to leave mankind there. Notice these three simple thoughts. In this plan of God, there was a probation involved. He made him a little lower than the angels uh, for the, uh, it's, uh, let me back up, verse 7. Now, madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor. When God created mankind, he did not create him at the pinnacle of his potential. He created him, he made him a little lower than the angels. And God's intent was to bring mankind into a place of prominence through a continual walk with him. I believe if Adam had continued to walk with God in the garden, he would have just continued to gain wisdom from God. I believe God would have walked Adam hand in hand into bringing the entire world under subjection under his feet. But, of course, we know that didn't happen. We understand that, that something interrupted that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Notice that there was a probation period involved. God didn't create mankind at that level, but there was a process involved, too. God had an intent. Thou crownest him with, with glory and honor. God intended through his involvement with humanity to bring man into that place and did set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. God's desire was to bring man to that point. Now, we know that Adam sinned before that could ever come to realization. But I want you to stop just before we move on and think about the potential that is involved in this statement. Now, look at what it says in verse number 8. Look at it carefully. It says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. You know, we're getting ready uh, probably soon, uh, unless the Lord answers our prayers and holds the weather off, we're getting ready to have a storm come in. And a storm is a good example of an element of creation that is not under the subjection of mankind. Mankind can do a lot of things to affect the world around him, but he can't do a thing about the weather. A tornado comes tearing through, there's nothing humanity can do to stop it. 
Uh, we look around us, we see there are certain wild beasts and animals that, that mankind has no ability to bring in subjection. By the way, it does not say to bring into obliteration. It says to bring in subjection. There's a difference. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I, I think immediately about Florida. They, they got these pythons. I guess they're pythons everywhere in Florida. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're causing wrecks where these big 12-foot-long pythons are stretched across roads. What can they do about it? Well, they, they can eradicate them. But they can't do anything to make those snakes stay off the road. <laughs> uh, that's why they have to eradicate them. You have these uh, animals that become public nuisances and pests. Uh, you can go right now to Middle Tennessee. You can go up to Big South Fork and get a $5 stamp, and it'll let you hunt wild hogs all day long. Now, several years ago, it wasn't that way. Well, what happened? Well, people started bringing wild boars and wild hogs in, and they weren't indigenous, and they started taking over that region of the country. Now they're a nuisance. Uh, farmers can't keep their crops up, and, uh, I mean, you know, you can't even keep a nice golf course out there for these things rutting around and, and causing all kinds of problems. So the state has said, well, you get a $5 stamp, you can just shoot as many hogs till your heart's content. Mankind can obliterate and eradicate but mankind can't do a thing to drive those swine back to the place where they were originally from. All these things, I believe God had as a desire for mankind to have them into subjection. There's a few things we've been able to domesticate, you know. Uh, if you went and ate a hamburger today, chances are it didn't come from a wild cow, right? Uh, I was riding down the road, and me and my wife were talking. We passed one of our neighbors, and uh, they've got horses, and we were talking about the horses that they have. There ain't a lot of folks that uh, go out and break their own broncos and, and bring them into subjection, right? There's a few things we have domesticated, and they serve us now. Well, I believe it was God's intent for all of creation to do that. That was what God wanted. And the Bible makes it clear uh, that there came a time when God said, I will not withhold anything under the sun from the power of mankind. If he sets his mind to it, I'll allow him to do so. Now, imagine what Adam could have accomplished had sin not corrupted his mind. They say that any given person uses only 2% of their, of their mind's power. For, if you're like me, it's a lot less. It's in like the thousands of a decimal. But that means Beethoven. That means Einstein. Only ever used 2%. Imagine the potential that Adam had before sin marred his mind. All these things are laid out. The distinction of man is mentioned. God created a special place for mankind. So the sovereignty bestowed upon mankind is reviewed in verses 2 through the beginning of verse number 8. But now look at the end of verse 8. We see the sovereignty of God bestowed on mankind was revoked. The Bible says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. That's the reality of what we see around us. We see a world out of control, a world in chaos. Now what caused that? Sin caused that. Now, it's not to say that every problem in society is caused by the direct personal sin of an individual, but it is to say that, that the chaos of the world is the result of sin's presence in it. In other words, because Adam chose to sin, all of humanity... By the way, this, this is a mankind problem. This wasn't a God problem. This was a mankind. Man chose sin. Man corrupted and sullied the creation of God around him. Man chose to do that. And so that sovereignty that God had bestowed, that, that sovereignty that God wanted for mankind to have over creation, went away. Now we're just doing our best to tread water. But notice what it says in verse number 9. This is encouraging. Now, I bet you've never thought about this in, this in this light before. Notice that the sovereignty bestowed upon mankind is revived. Now, the first Adam lost that natural sovereignty that was bestowed upon mankind. But the Bible says in verse number 9, But we see Jesus, who just like mankind 
was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In Christ we have the hope that we lost in Adam. Adam messed up. Adam sinned. Adam lost that sovereign rule that humanity hoped to have over all of creation. This is why I said it's important to know and understand this correlation between Adam and Christ and between the the two federal heads of the human race because what Adam lost through his sin... Christ, through His salvation, will restore and has revived a hope in. You see, they were looking to the Old Testament. Paul says, we see Jesus. You're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking to Old Testament prophets. You're looking to angels. You're looking to Old Testament priests, and you're hoping to find hope in them. But we see Jesus, and He is the only hope of mankind ever enjoying that privileged and precious place in God's economy and in God's creation. So we see in this passage Christ's sovereignty as man is pointed to. But it's very quickly we see a transition. How is that going to happen? Now remember in verse number 9 it says we see Jesus, but how do we see Him? We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But in verse number 9 it goes on to speak of Christ's sufferings as a man. So God has a process to bring mankind back in control of creation. How's it going to happen? It's not going to happen through carbon taxes. It's not going to happen through solar farms and wind farms. I'm not necessarily against solar or or wind. I am against carbon taxes. Somebody say amen to that. But but I'm not necessarily against, you know, means of alternative energy. If they can figure out a way to make that work and and power my microwave, more power to them. But that's not where mankind is going to bring creation back under subjection under it. It's only through the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it began in the same way when mankind was created, it was created a little lower than the angels. For what purpose? That he might enjoy fellowship with God. But Jesus Christ, he, he also is the federal head. But you have in the Word of God, Adam's the, the, uh, anti, uh, the, the type and Christ is the antitype. He's the picture. He is the substance. And so if you have almost like a mirror image, you understand. When Adam was created, it was that he might join in communion with God. When Christ was incarnated, it was that his communion might be severed on the cross of Calvary. When Adam was created, he was created with all the world in subjection under him, and he lost that sovereignty. When Christ was incarnated, he was, cre- he was incarnated without the world under subject to him in an experiential way, but for the intent that he might bring the world under subjection unto him. You almost imagine if you look at the world at the point of Christ, at the point of the birth of Christ as being the bottom of a, of a V. And here's Adam, and from Adam everything went down. And then here's Christ is born at the lowest point of human experience, and now everything's on an upward tick. Now, that's not to say we're pushing towards a utopian, but it's to say that in the economy of God's system, that Christ is bringing us out of the despair that Adam's sin led us into. So his suffering is pointed to, because had Christ not died on the cross of Calvary, this wouldn't have been possible. Notice two simple thoughts that are given. First off, his marvel, the marvelous truth of his coming is spoken of. We see Jesus, and there's two things noted, who was made a little lower than the angels. Notice the position through his incarnation. When he was created, he became, or not created, excuse If I make that mistake again, you just trust that I'm not a heretic. I just misspoke. Amen. When he was incarnate, when he was incarnate, uh, he was placed in a manger. He took flesh upon himself. He was placed in that position a little lower than the angels. Why did this happen? Notice not only the position uh, involved, but notice the purpose that he, through death, or, I'm sorry, he was, uh, we see Jesus, verse number 9, who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. 
He came into this world when Adam was created, it was that he might live. When Christ was incarnated, it was that he might die. When Adam was created, he brought death to all mankind. When uh, Christ was incarnated, uh, he did so and, and is able to bring life unto all mankind if they'll come unto him. The reason for his incarnation was his death. Every child that is born is born with the intent of living. Only Christ was born that he might die. That was the aim, that was the goal, that was the driving force of his incarnation. So the marvelous truth of his coming is given coming is given at the end of verse number 9. Notice verse number 10, the marvelous triumph of the cross is pointed to. It says, for it became him, and that, that's interesting, we'll talk about that in a minute. It became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, we might say it this way. If we were to look at the beginning of verse 9, we have the how Jesus came into the world spoken of. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. If we look in uh, verse number uh, 9, at the end of it, we see the what. For his coming. For what purpose did he come? That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Verse number 10, we have the why this was necessary placed forth. Why did Jesus Christ have to become man, have to die on the cross? Why did he have to live and walk as a human being amongst us? Well, I want you to notice three things. Notice, number one, that his sufferings were fitting. You say, what do you mean? Look at that first phrase in verse 10. For it became him. Uh, can I give you an example of what this means? Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Somebody is wearing a new outfit, and they say, it's very becoming on you. You ever heard someone say that? What they're saying is it fits well. That's very fitting and appropriate and attractive that you are wearing that. When I look at it, it makes sense. Well, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world, His incarnation, His sufferings were a fitting, a necessary component of His salvation. He had to experience this. Notice that they were fitting, but notice also they were fruitful. What does it say? Uh, By whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. The cross of Calvary was appropriate for the Son of God. Now, it wasn't appropriate in the sense that he deserved it, but it was appropriate and his sufferings were appropriate in the sense that for the ministry he would embark upon after Calvary of being our high priest, he had to experience suffering. Uh, How could he be a faithful priest if he had never suffered? One commentator described it this way. He said that, uh, and this is kind of ironic, uh, this illustration is in light of the political winds in our country, but said that, uh, you know, a multimillionaire or a billionaire could be elected to office, and they might govern better than anyone else, but they won't have the confidence of those that have been raised up in poverty because they feel like he doesn't know what they're going through or what things are like. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ, see, he didn't need to suffer to be able to administer the offices of a high priest. But he did need to suffer for us to have the confidence that we need to have in him. Now, stop and think about that. The Lord is so concerned with your confidence that he experienced the human suffering of his earthly ministry. He didn't have to, but he did so so that he might be a fit high priest. So that we come and we pray, we know we're praying to one that knows excuse me, what we're going through and what we're experiencing. They were fitting, but notice, and we already read this, they were fruitful. The cross of Calvary was not a defeat. It was a triumph. He defeated death, and he brought many sons unto glory. It's interesting, it doesn't say he brought them all, because there will be some that will reject him. But he brought many sons unto glory. 
If you need to wonder whether the cross of Calvary was a success, and we, it's not our place to judge God's uh, actions, but if we needed to find out if it was a success, think about all the people you know in life who are saved by God's grace. I, while I think sometimes it, it can be misleading to look at professing Christendom as a, as a measure of what is actual Christianity, certainly we could look all across the world, and there's many sons that have been brought unto glory. I see that they were fruitful. Notice the end of verse number 10. I see they were fundamental. The Bible says to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean perfect morally. It means perfect ministerially, like we talked about a moment ago. Now, it's interesting the language says the captain of their salvation. That evokes the idea, especially in this time, of someone that would be uh, manning the helm of a ship and would be driving and directing a ship. If you're going to have confidence in your captain, the only way you can have confidence is if you know he's sailed these waters before. It's the only way. He can have all the maps. He can have all the instruments to tell, uh, to measure longitude and latitude. But the only way you can know 100% for sure that your life is in good hands is if you know he's been this way before. I think about uh, the Titanic. You know, The Titanic was sailing on a safe course, but it couldn't account for the moving icebergs. But Lord Jesus, He's been this way before. He's suffered through death. When we, as a believer, approach unto death, we're approaching unto waters He's already sailed. We're coming to a place that He's already been through. And when we look at the cross of Calvary, we can have confidence that as far as the magnitude of our sin, He has already dealt with it. When He saved you, He knew who and what you were. Every sin you've ever committed, He already died for on the cross of Calvary. He knows what you're going to be. He knows what you're going to to do. So the marvelous triumph of his cross is spoken of. Now notice this next section and we'll be done. I know you don't believe that, but I mean it. Of course, this next section is about seven or eight verses. But uh, I want you to notice Christ's sympathy as man is pointed to. Now, again, we're talking about why he as the Son of Man is far better than anyone else. And particularly why he is far better than the angels that were attending the dispensational law in the Old Testament. And one of those reasons is because of Christ's sovereignty as man. He can restore that which Adam allowed to slip away. His sufferings as a man. He became a man that he might experience what you and I experience. And as an extension of that, we note his sympathy as man. Now, notice uh, there's a few ways in which he is able to be sympathetic with us. And what does it mean to be sympathetic? I think we could maybe even put the term empathetic in here too. He might have used that if it wasn't for the alliteration of the matter. Uh, when we talk about sympathy, we're talking about someone that can feel our pain. They, they don't just feel bad for us. They feel bad with us. And how can Jesus Christ do that? Well, notice a few ways he has sympathy with us. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Uh, the Bible says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. I believe he has sympathy with mankind, and it's evidenced by the fact that we are related to him. Now, I, I, that is true in a spiritual sense. We are, I mean, we're, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We've been saved. But inasmuch as he became a human being, we are in, in at least a biological or at least in, in a, a superficial sense as human beings related to him in that way. In other words, the angels could not tell us 
that they've been through what we've been through. But Christ identified with us by becoming human. Notice a couple things that are pointed to. He is related to us in terms of sanctification, at least for those of us that are saved. This is interesting. I think this is beautiful in verse number 11. By the way, I think this is one of the strongest verses to prove biblical justification in all the Word of God. It says, For both he that sanctifieth, that's talking about Jesus Christ, and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, the term justification, we talked about a little bit in the preaching last night. It means to be set at a right position with God. And the way that's accomplished is we have been placed within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when God sees us, He sees Jesus Christ. Can I give you an example in reverse? (laughs) That's the only way I know to say it. If you go through the Old Testament, through the book of Leviticus, and you read the law concerning lepers, you'll find beautiful insight into this. If a person was a leper, they were required, they lived in, in, in groups, in colonies. Whenever they were coming down the road, if, if, if a person was a leper and they met another individual, they were forced to cry out, unclean, unclean, and to warn people. Because by their very proximity, they could infect another human being. In fact, if you were to touch a person that was a leper, you were then considered a leper. And you were considered unclean. We might say it this way, that he that is polluted... And he that pollutes are all of one. You didn't have to have a history of leprosy. If you just touched a leper, you were treated as a leper. Gives a lot of insight to when the Lord touched and healed the leper, don't it? Because it tells us what his sanctification does. Only the righteousness of Christ, by the way, would be pure and potent enough to accomplish this. Has it ever dawned on you that when Christ touched the leper, the leper didn't make him unclean, he made the leper clean? The same way that if a leper was to touch someone, then he would be the polluter and the person that had been touched would be the polluted and they would be considered all of one. Well, in the same way, when Jesus Christ, when we reach out and touch Him, like the woman who had an issue of blood, we reach out and grab hold of Him. His righteousness is imputed unto us. And He sanctifies us and we are identified one and the same. We are considered in a common relationship and communion and situation. I think that, I mean, man, I could just sit on that verse and preach for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 2 hours. I don't know. But it's beautiful to me to consider that Christ was willing to become man that he might identify with you and me. And in his sanctification, there's no closer relationship we can have than to be placed within his righteousness. So we're related to him in terms of sanctification. I think also the Scripture makes it clear that we are related to him. Look at these few verses that are given here, uh, verses 14, or I'm sorry, 12 and 13. It says, saying. Now, why does it say saying? Because it's quoting Scripture. Let's back up verse 11. We'll read it through. It'll be a little smoother. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying. Now, what's he quoting? The Bible is uh, quoting here Psalms 22:22, which, by the way, is a messianic psalm. And if you go back, listen to this. This is what was on the mind of the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Uh, chapter number thir- or verse 13 quotes Isaiah chapter number 8. It says, And again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Now, what do these two verses tell us? It's interesting. If you want to know the facts of the crucifixion, then read through the Gospels. 
But if you want to understand something about the feelings of the crucifixion, read through the Messianic Psalms. Because you gain a glimpse into what was going on in the mind and heart of Jesus Christ when He was hanging on the cross. And one of the things that crossed His mind is He was considering how that through the cross of Calvary, the name of God would be displayed and declared. And you know what He calls those that would receive Him? He calls them brethren. Brethren. So we have scriptural precedent here. Down in verse 13, that passage in Isaiah chapter 8 is very interesting. It's a prophecy that was given concerning the impending Assyrian invasion. And the prophet was, uh, God blessed his home with a son. And that son's name was symbolic of the destruction that was coming upon the nation of Israel. And when he, uh, God gave him that name for his child, he began to call his child and his other children that name. And he identified by name all of his children as being singularly together and one, both formally and prophetically and literally. I think it denotes the fact that given that we can share the name of Christ, and that's what we are, right? We're Christians. We've shared the name of Christ. We've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And His righteousness has been imputed unto us. And when God sees us, He sees us as joint heirs with Christ, heirs of God. He is identifying the believers with Himself. Now, I'll tell you something. There's not sympathy quite as deep as the sympathy in which you're willing to identify another person's suffering. Let me tell you something. If I was to, it's tax season, right? we got just a couple weeks here, and the IRS will be coming with guns to everybody's doors. And... Um, if a person got into tax trouble, let's say, I, I don't know, let's say Tom didn't pay any income tax for the last 15 years, and IRS came to him. I'm not saying he hasn't. I'm just saying, let's say that was the case. And they, they were to come to Tom and to say, Tom, listen, you owe 175000 in back taxes. Uh, it was 10000 originally, but then we added all the fees and interest and penalties, so now you owe 175000 in taxes. And he was to come and to tell this body of believers. He gets some sympathy. I really believe that. Uh, people would say, Tom, I feel sorry for you. Man, I, I, I hate that for you. Tom, listen, if you need to borrow a few dollars, I'd be happy to. But what if somebody came to him? What if I walked up to him and said, Tom, this is what I want to do. I want you to take your debt. We're going to go down to a bank. We're going to take out a loan. I'm going to co-sign for you. And I'm going to let my name stand with your name. And whenever they come after you, they're coming after me. And I'll be willing to stand good with you. I'd say that's a sympathy far greater than any casseroles that might be brought by or any words of condolence that might be offered. In the same way, the Lord Jesus has sympathized with mankind in His relation to them in a way that we cannot even fathom, in that He allowed us to take His name and He took our name. And He that sanctifieth and they which are sanctified are one. And He allowed Himself through His humanity to experience our death on the cross of Calvary. He took our debt. And, and, and took that burden and became that burden and bore it to Calvary. We see his sympathy in terms of the fact that we're related to him. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Bible says, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I think his sympathy is related to us in that he's related to us. He became human being. But I think also his sympathy to mankind is related in the fact that we are rescued by him. He came to our aid. We notice a few things about these verses. Notice, first off, what he accepted in becoming humanity. The Bible says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. I don't know. One of my great 
disappointments with the Christmas season as it's celebrated today is we spend a lot of time talking about the manger and the wise men and the star. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. That's in your Bible. We ought to preach about it. But I feel like very rarely do people ever allow the true intent and beauty of Christmas to shine through. Do you know what Christmas was about? Christmas, it wasn't about camels and sheep and shepherds and wise men and stars. That's all involved. I understand that. It wasn't about inns and mangers and, and Joseph and Mary. That's all involved. I understand that. It wasn't about angels declaring the glory of God in the heavens. I know that's in there. That's not what it's about. Christmas is about the incarnation. The fact that the Son of God condensed and robed Himself in flesh and took upon Him human suffering for you and I. Consider for a moment, he did not have to do that. He chose to do that. He had to do that if he was going to save us. He didn't have to save us. Has it ever dawned on you that saving a sinner does not make God God and it doesn't make Jesus Jesus? He is who he is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In fact, if you really want to know where Christ's desire was, now he wanted to save sinners, but as far as, as where, you, you, have you ever said something, you ever been out doing something, you thought, boy, I'd rather be sitting at the house. And, and, and you're doing, you know you need to do what you're doing, and, and you know you're going to enjoy the benefit of what you're doing, but you're saying, boy, I wish I was sitting at the house. That'd be more comfortable, right? You know what Jesus prayed right before the cross of Calvary? He said, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world was. I believe if we were talking about mere comfort and ease, it was far more comfortable for Christ in heaven than it ever was walking this earth. Now, I'm not saying he didn't want to die for us. He did want to. But it's his love. It's his love that birthed that. Not, not his comfort. Not his ease. Not even, even though the cross will bring him and has brought him glory. He already was glorified with the Father. He didn't need the cross to be glorious. He was already glorious. Why did he go? I want you to notice what he accepted, but notice who he accosted. Look what it says. He also himself likewise took part of the same. For what purpose? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He became flesh for you and me. But in becoming flesh and dying on the cross of Calvary, he did so that he might thwart our greatest enemy. One commentator said it this way, and I thought this was very appropriate. If the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, then the prospect of death is the sword of Satan. It is the means through which he has persecuted and accosted mankind. And when Christ took on death, when he died the death of the cross of Calvary, when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he thwarted the plan and power of Satan. Now, you don't have to believe this, but I believe this. I believe that Satan really believed that the cross was going to be a victory for him. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, it was Satan that put it in the heart of Judas to betray the Lord Jesus. You remember? The Bible says, from that time forth, Satan entered into, into Judas. I believe that Satan wanted the cross to take place, but I don't know that he anticipated what would happen afterwards. Now, I don't understand how somebody that knows as much Bible as Satan does, and he knows a lot of Bible, knows more Bible than the average Baptist preacher. Amen. <coughs> I don't know how he missed it, but somehow. Pride's a wicked thing. Pride blinds people. Somehow he missed it. Somehow he missed what would come after Calvary. 
And don't you know, it was an alarming thing when on the third day the Son of God got up and walked out of that tomb. All of Satan's great hopes and dreams. He had been fighting for centuries, for millennia, to try to thwart God's plan. He had tried in the Garden of Eden, but God had a plan. He had tried in the life of Abraham, but God had a plan. He had tried in the life of Isaac, but God had a plan. He had tried in the life of Joseph, but God had a plan. He had tried in the life of the children of Israel there in Egypt. You remember he tried to slay all the firstborn. What was he doing? He was trying to stomp out the promised seed. He knew. He understood there was a promised seed coming. He'd stood in the garden. He had heard the the words of of God when He said that uh, I will put enmity between uh, thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He understood that there was a promised seed coming. He was trying to stomp it out. Tried again at the birth of Christ through Herod slaying all of the the, uh, male children under a certain age. And I believe he was trying again here. I believe, by the way, he was trying also uh, when he tempted uh, Christ in the wilderness. I believe to him the greatest chance he had was the cross of Calvary. Don't you imagine it was a shocking thing when Christ rose in power and in glory to forever thwart Satan's grip and hold, his unconditional grip and hold that he had on humanity. We see what or who he accosted. Notice also what he accomplished. Look at verse 15. And deliver them. Now, that's you and me that have believed on the Lord Jesus. Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Death is no longer a, uh, a fearful thing for us. Now, that's not to say there is not a natural fear of death. Of course there is. But now, it, it, is, it's, it doesn't have to be a fear of the unknown. Uh, that's what's interesting. You look at the life of Christ. Most men fear death because of the unknown. Christ, when it gave him an anxiety in the garden concerning his suffering and death, it wasn't because of what he didn't know, it was because of what he did know. And now that he has traversed that valley, he has paid our debt, he has experienced and conquered death. Death doesn't have to hold any more sway over us. One illustrator gave it this way. You know, the Bible tells us that death is a gift from God. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And death is given as a release and relief for the believer. And some would no doubt say, well, that's not much of a gift. That's not a gift that I want. But the writer told the story. He said that he was a British soldier during World War II. And he was tasked with watching over a camp of German POWs. And he said, we didn't want to be watching over them, but it was far better to be watching over them than for them to be armed and looking for us. And he said, we knew they had been disarmed and disengaged, and they were harmless, and we watched over them said, death is the same way. Death may seem like a strange gift for God to give us, but let us never forget, though it is a reality, it's appointed unto man wants to die, that death has been disarmed and disengaged. Though we may experience it, we do not have to fear it because of the cross of Calvary, the greatest enemy of mankind, which is death. I understand on a spiritual level that there's far greater to fear than just death. But humanly speaking, because remember, we're talking about how Christ became human being for you and I. Humanly speaking, as far as the flesh is concerned, flesh and blood that he took part of, the greatest enemy is death. Christ has already defeated that enemy. We see that his sympathy is related to us, is expressed to us in that we're related to him. It's expressed to us in that we are rescued by him. But I want you to notice, and we'll be done tonight, it is expressed to us in that we are reconciled through him. Luke verses 16, 17, and 18. The Bible says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. 
Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that it might be, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. When we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about setting two things back into communion one with another. If uh, two individuals in a marriage, if they have been separated uh, and they reconcile, that means they've gotten back together. And the reconciliation, while there's far more to it than just this simple definition, when we talk about God reconciling us unto Himself through Christ Jesus, what it means is we have been placed back in a relationship with Him. Now, why can He do this? Well, number one, He can do this because He understands our nature. Verse 16. He didn't take on Him the seed of angels. He didn't take upon Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him uh, the nature of the seed of Abraham. Now, this would have really meant something to a Jew that was reading this, because to them, Abraham is hes the father of the Jewish nation. I mean, he's, he's, he is their uh, religious federal head. He, he's the father of faith. And the writer points out that he could have took upon him the nature of angels, but he didn't. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. He became flesh and blood while he was the Son of God, while in many ways he was not like you and me. In many ways he was like you and me. And he understands our nature. I want to be very careful with how I explain this, because he does not have a sin nature. Jesus Christ has never had a sin nature. He does not have a sin nature. He never will have a sin nature, ever. But he did experience the frailty that it is to be a human being. Has it ever dawned on you that before Christ became human, that he never had cause or reason to fret or to be concerned or to be troubled about anything? He didn't experience those things. Now, I understand the Bible talks about God being grieved. Those things are, I think, in a lot of ways anthropomorphic. I think God is, is trying to give us something to help us understand what he goes through and deals with. But Christ never had reason to experience those things. Christ didn't know what it was to be persecuted. He was uh, enthroned in glory, surrounded by angels who day in and day out cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, He had no reason to be spit upon, to be scorned. He was the centerpiece of God's glory, the brightness of God's glory. But he took upon him that experience of human suffering. He came into the world and uh, the world knew him not came unto his own, and his own knew him not. The world rejected him. Though the world was made by him, the world had no place for him. He did this for you and I. That he might, because you understand something. If, if somebody is, is separated, if you've got, here's God and here's us, and we are totally helpless to get ourselves to God, somebody had to come and get us. That's what Jesus did. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. He became like us. He came near unto us that we might reach out and grab his hand that he might bring us to God. He knows our nature. But notice not only does he know our nature, he knows our needs. He understands our needs. Verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 tells us that he understands our needs in an explicit way. Again, we have an interesting word. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. What does that mean? It means it benefited him. It enabled him. Not just that it was appropriate, but that it was enabling for him to to be made like unto his brethren. It equipped him for a task and for a job. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
He literally became human so that he might literally bring human beings unto God. He understands our needs in an explicit way. But then finally, and I'm done, he understands them in an experiential way. Verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That word succor is interesting. It literally means to run at a cry for help. To run at a cry for help. Uh, it don't happen much anymore because our little boy, he's, you know, he's three, and we're good at this parenting thing now. We know what we're doing. No curveballs coming. We know everything's going on. <laughs> I'm not tempting you, Lord. I promise. I'm just being funny. But I, I remember when uh, when we first brought him home, I don't think my wife slept for six months. She'd sleep, but she wouldn't sleep. And some of you that have, that, that are mamas, you know what I mean. She'd lay in bed, and, and uh, before we had him, I mean, you know, uh, you could hit a gong in the bedroom and she'd, she'd sleep through it. But after he was born, I mean, the slightest little thing, she'd, she'd wake up. She'd jump up out of bed, take off running to him. She had a place in her heart for him. She cared more about him than she cared about her. And she was worried about what might happen. Now, here's the difference between my wife and the Lord Jesus, one of them. <laughs> one of the differences is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, she got up and ran because she didn't know what was happening. But he gets up and runs because he does know what's happening. He knows when your heart's breaking and he runs to your help. He knows. He, 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 he doesn't just put on. He understands what you're going through. Whatever you experience, you'll never get a, 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 a fake, a synthetic, a, a, a pretense answer from him. Because he knows what you're experiencing. It's encouraging because there's sometimes when I just need the Lord to tell me to hush and get over it. But there's sometimes when I need the Lord's help. I need Him to minister to me. I need His comfort. I need His strength. And the Lord knows the difference between the two, and He knows in those moments how desperately I truly need Him. For where would we be, not just without the Son of God, but without the Son of Man? Truly an angel couldn't do that for us. Only Christ, who was robed in flesh and experienced what we experience could minister to us in such a way. By the way, Paul's laying the foundation. He's going to go on and talk a lot about being a high priest. But it all began with the fact that Christ was willing to partake of flesh and blood, just like you and me. 